Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Yes, my name is uh, Nicholas Gravish. Um, Nick Gravish, actually. Uh, I'm from uh, University of California, San Diego in the United States um, in the Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering Department. Yeah. So I would like to go back. What's the first robot you built? Um, th- that's a great question. I um, built a robot as part of a um, uh, sort of high school science Olympiad um, project. It was very, very uh simple single motor um uh, attempting to kind of uh drive through a little obstacle course um but uh i mean i I think also stepping back a little bit further like i don't um i I did a lot of uh deconstruction of of um you know simple electronic systems and and um trying to build electronics when i was in high school and got really into electronics and motors but Mm -hmm. didn't really revisit um robotics until well into my um phd actually so i i and and even then kind of only later in my phd so my um work in robotics is is you know kind of been off and on uh uh up until uh i was in my phd and my postdoc in which i sort of Mm -hmm. started doing a lot yeah so when you were a child have you ever think about robotics or anything Science of technology when you were a kid. Well, I mean, I you know I I think probably similar to a lot of us, um, I was obsessed with uh, science fiction books and movies um, in which robotics play a a huge part in. So um, I uh, yeah I think that uh, uh, I've always been interested in uh, robotics and I think even more so I was uh, always interested in artificial intelligence. uh, when I was really young. So I've just always been fascinated by kind of how do we create synthetic systems that, that can kind of, uh, you know, have some of the properties of life uh, or of, of living systems. Yeah. So if I ask you how you would define soft robotics from your experience and what do you think the most important questions that should be considered in the field? Um, I think that's a great question. I think soft robotics is... Um, I think it's so interesting because I think that you can have uh, such a breadth of, of definitions of soft robotics. My definition of um, soft robotics is, is probably the most inclusive. I define soft robots as um, robots which have you know uncontrolled degrees of freedom, uh, specifically uncontrolled um, uh, body components, degrees of freedom, so joints or um, uh, soft elements. Um, and, and I think that that's, you know, can include robots that have many rigid components as part of their body. But if there are um, elements of the body that uh, are soft or even just um, passively um, under, under, uh, under sort of passive dynamics, you know, a, a spring and a revolute joint, um, I think of these systems as, as uh, sort of having the commonality of, uh, of, deformations of the body that mm-hmm. are determined by uh, external forces on the body 
and kind of internal body accelerations. Um, and so I think of, I mean, I look at lots of things as being soft robotics. Um, so I think that that's a pretty um, inclusive definition in the sense that lots of things can be called soft robotics from that perspective. Mm -hmm. And what do you think the, the questions should be considered while we work in the field? The most important questions. Um, I mean, I think that the, you know, the connection between, um, oh, I don't know, let's see. I guess, you know, I come at soft robotics from um, a, a bio-inspired perspective as well. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think that, you know, my lab works on understanding um, movement and locomotion in, in animals, specifically in insects, um, and then trying to learn principles of that kind of movement uh, to build robots and to build the control of robots. Um, so, you know, I, I think... Um, movement and locomotion are, are the most interesting aspects of um, robotics, at least in my research. And I think that they tie into soft robotics quite extensively because to move, you need to push against the world. And when the world pushes back against you, it causes deformations of your body. Uh, and those deformations can be uh, at specific joints that have muscles or actuators that are, that are controlling the torque at those joints. But it can also be, you know, along uh, the continuum of a um an octopus arm or something like that where deformations might happen within tissue or within uncontrolled um uh, uh unactuated regions of the body mm -hmm. and so you know i think from my perspective maybe this isn't the, the biggest question within soft robotics but I, i'm really interested in that interplay between um body deformation and, and locomotion and kind of how we have to um understand the physical forces that we exert against the world and how those forces deform our body and that feedback loop you know if you can get it right i think can lead to effective movement mm -hmm. that's very interesting yeah so if i ask you from the work you have done what is the most inspiring living creature that inspired you to abstract uh, for design and soft robotics research wow i mean i think that's a great question i think that so I don't work with um, any of the kind of classic soft robotics animals like um, you mm. know, octopus or anything like that. I think those animals are incredibly fascinating from a um, materials and control perspective. Um, I work with insects. Um, and in particular, I work with uh, small legged insects like cockroaches and, um, and ants. And I, 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 again, I've taken this perspective that um, insects present a really uh, a uh, nice example of this like integration of rigid, hard regions of their body that are useful for structural support or protection, but also, um, you know, large extended regions of the body that are flexible. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at like the um, ends of uh, like the, the sort of very far ends of many insect feet, they're sort of these large, um, many segmented regions that are under control via a single tendon. So, I mean, I think of that as effectively a um, uh, sort of quote unquote soft robotics manipulator, uh, or at least under actuated uh, manipulator. And those feet allow their, um, the, 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 that structure allows their feet to uh, conform to different surface types, you know, so to, to grasp onto uh, rough surfaces or, or um, edges or things like that. Um, and so I think of um, insects as being actually a really um, beautiful example of inspiration for how to integrate soft and rigid body components towards, you know, functional 
objectives. And, and again, I'm really interested in locomotion. And so I think of, um, you know, how do we make um, software robots move more effectively? Um, and I think using rigid components tightly intertwined with, with soft, um, flexible, responsive regions of the body is, is um, a really good design principle for these kinds of robots. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. So do you think material science could be, play a role, a uh, significant role in design the soft parts of, for example, uh, what you said? To which level material science is important? I mean, I think, I think materials are, I think they're going to be the, um, I mean, lead to possibly some of the biggest breakthroughs in soft robotics. I think that the, the kind of soft robots that we build in my lab are, um, are incredibly, um, dumbed down compared to what I think you can produce from, from, uh, you know, real material science engineering. So, you know, we, we build things that are using low cost 3d printers and sort of low cost, um, silicone molding techniques. Um, and so they're really just built out of maybe one to two materials in, in total. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and I think as we start to, um, make these, uh, the, the try and control the, the mechanical properties of the, uh, manipulators and bodies that we're building and we try and control those more precisely. Um, I think that you need to make sort of more, um, you need to have more control over the sort of gradients in mechanical properties along the body and specificity of the mechanical properties in certain locations. And I think that that, you know, I think that that can come through um, the architecture of the, of the material that you lay down, like as in um, casting regions that have ribs or, or uh, spines to give certain kind of um, stress strain properties. But I think in the end, it's going to be, material science that's going to really contribute to how we, um, you know, make a region be stiff and then make a region right next to it be um, stiff plus a little ductile and then a region next to that be extremely resilient and and elastic. Um, And so I think, you know, I think in the end, um, we're going to need to learn how to integrate um, or kind of use everything from material science to um, really specify the mechanical properties. at, at precise locations along the body um, to get out the kind of mechanical properties of the whole robot that we that we want. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know. I, I tell everybody. I think um, the the I think what we do in my lab is sort of the the um, concept generation for uh, these these types of robots, like explorations of how integrating soft and rigid regions um, gives you a certain kind of functionality, maybe a um, a flapping tail for a swimming robot that uh, has the right kind of um, thrust production. Um, But we do it with, again, these kind of like pretty poor materials, right? I mean, I think anybody, um, uh, everybody who's worked with relatively low cost FDM 3D printing materials knows that these plastics degrade really quickly. They don't have great, durability and you know we build robots out of those materials so the robots that we build they don't last very long they sort of allow us to test certain concepts but the next step is then using you know more uh, resilient long-lasting fatigue resistant um, materials and that's going to come from material science Mm -hmm. that's very interesting so before going to the challenges and limitation 
I'm curious to ask you from your experience, what do you think are the most misconception you have witnessed while working on robotics? Something concerning and worrying to you? Oh, uh, something concerning or worrying? Hmm. <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, huh. I think I think in in robotics in general, I think there's a, a knee-jerk reaction to say that uh, AI and, and sort of intelligence um, are presenting us with lots of ethical and concerning issues. Um, so I think that's that's something that's easy to say. But in in specifically to soft robotics, maybe specifically to my research, um, I think of the kind of um, materials that we use and uh, the the influence those materials may have on the environment. I mean, uh, that's something that I, I you know, I, I think we didn't produce, you know, such a small amount of uh, wasteful plastics that it's, it's not a real concern. But I think we all have this vision, or at least I, I have this vision of um, building robot foundries that, uh, you know, can churn out teams of robots um, to, to, you know, do some tasks that we might need and build those like just on the fly, right? And so you can imagine if you take that argument off to its extreme, um, that we're basically building these like teams of robots uh, out of all these these degradable um, components and then sending them off to some very localized area and then they just kind of like, uh, you know, do their task and maybe die there uh, or, or um, sit there. So I don't know. I think that that's something that um, I think about every once in a while is just sort of the, the um, I think a, a neat kind of new uh, direction for soft robotics and, and kind of swarm robotics in general might be mm -hmm. um, biodegradable robots that, you know, um, can go off and, and perform a task, but then effectively, um, uh, you know, be biodegradable and not contribute to any sort of further um, or pollution or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I think that's very interesting. And I'm curious to ask you, do you think that, because you, you mentioned biodegradable, do you think also integrating living creature um, and robotics as well, uh, soft robotics, is something could be worthy to investigate? And if you think what could be solution that we can unify the direction of research towards biodegradable, how we can make that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, you know, using just natural organic components from animals is a way to get um, biodegradable components into robots for sure. So, and I think that there's been some really interesting um, research in this area. I mean, I believe the um, the Xenobots, um, the, the, the sort of yeah. soft robots, I'll call them, but these um, collections of uh, cells, I'm going to just butcher the, the work, I'm sorry, but um, uh, I believe it's using like um, cells from, from, frog embryos that they put together in such a way to get out um, effective movement of these synthetic creatures. Um, I think that's really interesting. And then I know that there's a lot of work of integrating yeah, biological components um, as actuation methods or maybe as sensing elements into robots. I think that's really neat. Um, I think uh, the, the only challenges that I see with that are the scalability, you know, just mm. um, as long as it's sort of, um, uh, if you can effectively grow these robot components, um, I, I think then I can envision kind of how you can do this in a scalable manner. Um, but if it's, you know, requiring more um, hand manipulation or sort of, I don't know, lots of finicky integration of um, living components into these uh, artificial robots that we're building, mm -hmm. um, I think it presents a lot of challenges. 
Yeah. So I'm curious to ask you, would we go to different level of uh, designing or modeling or simulation for software product system? And especially for your work, I'm curious to ask you, are you more concerned about uh, the micro level to understand, fully understand how it, the system behaves? Or you just go to the macro level and just to have an overall picture? Because there's a trade-off here between uh, the computation, understanding. So how do you think about this kind of uh, level of understanding for systems in different yeah. scale? It's a great question. And it's one that I haven't fully had to grapple with until we've you know been under quarantine for two months. And, and, yeah. and my lab has basically had to shut down experiments and think about how do we simulate the things that we work on. Um, so we've done simulation before, but not at the level that we're trying to do now. I think um, just historically in my research, uh, I, I tend to think of the simplest system that might give me some understanding of the soft robot behavior. So that could be um, using a traditional sort of rigid joint link, joint link type structure um, to model a continuum uh, leg. And, and so that's really not focusing on the microscopic, it's focusing on the just macroscopic and, and reducing it to not even a soft robot anymore, just a, maybe a sort of, um, uh, I don't know, um, many degree of freedom mm -hmm. system. I think that kind of comes from, um, you know, my background is actually um, not in engineering so much as in physics. Uh, my, my PhD was in physics and, you know, there's this sort of saying that uh, us physicists sort of have this spherical cow kind of um, philosophy that, mm. you know, we kind of tend to um, over, not over, but uh, maybe some would argue oversimplify systems um, to try and to try and study them. And I think that I, I really take that perspective in, in the way that we work with robots too, is like, I, I want to first understand uh, a leg before I understand how four legs um, contribute to walking. And mm -hmm. Sometimes you can get bogged down in those details, but sometimes that's useful. And I think the same goes with simulation. Like I think that um, if it's going to take a, a day to simulate the full deformation of, uh, of the body, but it's going to take 10 minutes to simulate or 10 seconds to simulate the deformation of some um, simplified structure that, uh, that we think represents the body, mm -hmm. I'm a little more interested in learning about the, the simplified structure and how parameter variation can quickly give us insight into, um, you know, what are the design rules for, for, I'm you know, giving a leg as an example. So I, I don't know, I, I find, um, uh, without good experiments, focusing on the microscopic is not that useful. Mm -hmm. Um, macroscopic can often quickly provide some, um, some insight into kind of what are the important variables that you want to control for, for your design. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just asking you about the control uh, aspect for soft robotics because there's a debate in the field about that traditional control series is not really uh, effective anymore for the nature of the soft robotics. And now there's a trend for morphological computation. I'm curious to ask you how you would imagine uh, this debate between morphological computation and traditional control series. And if we migrate from traditional control series, what could be options for controlling in that case? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think uh, so. So, I'm of the perspective that morphological computation is a uh, 
effective um, uh, outcome of soft robotics. It's something that I think should be, um, we should lean into it, uh, so to speak, um, mm -hmm. because I think that, uh, uh, you know, continuum manipulators present huge challenges in terms of um, just the, the, you know, many, many degrees of freedom or infinite degrees of freedom and how do you model them and control them. And um, so I think maybe instead, can we understand what their um, typical modes of interaction with the environment are? Um, and can we, again, you know, maybe extract out a few design parameters that might, um, that we could study those interactions and how those design parameters control those interactions um, and then design systems that that um, give us the sort of morphological um, computation uh, uh, capabilities that we think are important right i mean i think think of like a soft um, a soft tentacle grasping around an object and you know what are the important parameters for grasping an object of a certain radius right i think you probably want to have um, you know the right kind of bending moment of inertia of the soft tentacle. It can't be too big. It can't be too stiff. Um, but once we nail those things down, then I think that um, the ability for that soft tentacle to sort of actively conform to a surface, I guess, passively conform, if you want to think about it that way, although I think it's a little bit of a um, actively in the sense it's actuated, passively in the sense that it's bending at unactuated um, locations. I think that's really useful. Um, I mean, I think, you know, the other thing I would say, and, and mm -hmm. I'm happy to admit, is that I come from a different background. I don't come from an engineering and controls theory background. So that's always kind of been an afterthought in my mind. Um, and, and it's been a thing where I, um, as much as I can accomplish without having to think about um, control, or at least the, the really details of control, um, that's where I like to work. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of where, again, I'll bring it back to insects because again, I've thought about them for tens of years and I really, really just um, love this world that they inhabit. Um, it, it, there was this um, uh, sort of historically, this, this work that, that uh, came out, I believe 10 or 15 years ago, um, um, you know, really starting to look at the details of legged locomotion and build robots inspired by legs. And, and one of the features of uh, many insects that, move around is that they take incredibly quick steps you know ants step at 10 times per second but um other beetles step at 70 times per second there's a i mean my favorite example uh in all of science and everything is uh this tiny little mite that takes 220 steps per second right 220 steps that's Whoa. that's insane yeah um and it's the size of it's about a millimeter uh in total body size right so just you think about okay we've made or that animal is incredibly tiny it is moving at extreme speeds and it's moving across substrates that are that are there's no possible way that any um sensing or sort of forethought can be um used to control the, yeah. the touch down and touch off of those feet um it's effectively uh undergoing some kind of open loop actuation but mm. It, it seems to be incredibly effective, effective. And so it's kind of the perspective that I take with the robots that I build is how do we, um, how do we get the kind of design of the robot just right so that uh, it can operate in um, 
unknown on unknown substrates or in unknown environments and yet still be effective with little sensing or maybe even no um you know feedback control uh yeah. but maybe just all open loop that's um, very interesting so. that's very interesting so if i ask you what the challenges because uh, it seems very challenging for fabrication and this kind of issues what could be the limitation as well the limitation on um, controllability or, or yeah the controllability for smaller scale system like ant if you imagine oh, that yeah. there is no feedback and sensing in, embedded so it's a challenging if you can tell us what yeah. challenges you expect i think um there's there's a couple trade-offs with working at that small scale one um you're really never worried about breaking your robot um and the same goes with ants um you know basically you can flick an ant off a sky skyscraper and uh, uh it's so small that it's surface area to body weight is uh, large and it's gonna you know hit the ground at a relatively low speed um, even when it hits the ground it's built out of again tough and resilient material so um so it's not gonna break and the same goes for the robots that we build at those scales they're you know they're just so lightweight that um you never really worry about breaking them not like you do with maybe a um you know a large hexapod robot where you don't want to uh, crash it into a wall too many times because it might bend the frame or something like that um so that, that's an advantage i know you asked about the challenges the challenges um come in that uh i think our current capabilities of building these small scale uh robots um are that we just don't have great um tools to build them right like we don't have 3d printers uh well at least uh, available to me we don't have 3d printers that can print um mm. you know a, a robot that's five millimeters by five millimeters or even you know five centimeters by five centimeters um maybe five centimeters by five centimeters one centimeter by one centimeter mm. how about that printing you know um joints and flexible appendages and things like that um so i think the fabrication tools um for working at that small scale are really challenging um and then uh, of course actuation and, and computation i think are, are additional challenges everything's hard i guess at that kind of intermediate scale but i, I do think that uh you know um computation um and and power i think uh consumer electronics have driven fantastic advances in, in um small scale batteries and small um uh, you know embedded circuitry and things like that um that can you know that can be dropped into uh, relatively small scale robots. I think the actuation yeah. still all has to be custom done. And so you have to, you know, uh, pick your favorite actuator and really um, get to engineering that to uh, be able to achieve the, the goals of your robot. Maybe it's stepping fast or maybe it's um, sort of large displacements of legs or things like that. Um, so I, I do think that the biggest challenges are just um, on the fabrication mm -hmm. side of things at that small scale. Yeah. I, I agree with you. And if I ask you, what do you think the biggest technological roadblocks for soft robotics in a short term and a longer term, if you can imagine what could be uh, the challenging roadblocks for technology developed in soft robotics? Um, yeah, I don't, let's see. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, for me, from my perspective, maybe this isn't the global perspective on these challenges but for me it's it's on 
like figuring out that integration of um, uh, forces from the external world and forces from the internal body and that mm. that interaction between those two and how movement emerges from those interactions. So I, I just, I still don't think we, um, uh, we don't have a very great generalized understanding of, um, uh, of how a continuous, continuously deforming soft body um, with actuation capabilities um, is going to interact with uh, um, a heterogeneous environment like mm. um, turbulent uh, water flow or um, repeated intermittent contacts with uh, with the ground. So I think for me, it's it's still, I don't know, it's always going to come back to the locomotion question because that is just what I'm the most interested in. Um, and I think soft robotics um, presents you with a uh, just a, a incredibly wide design space, right? We're not we're not so constrained to think about like uh, legs as the means of moving across the ground. We can think about combinations of legs plus slithery mm -hmm. body plus um, you know viscous secretions from from the underbelly like slugs. I mean, I think that there's just um, you know from the biological world. Um, many, many different modes of locomotion and optimal solutions to uh, soft robotics uh, locomotion challenge might come from multiple different types of these uh, um, locomotion modalities all in the same robot. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think to me, that's, that's the most interesting kind of bigger questions are just what are the effective means to make soft, um, soft robots move through the world? And I think historically, like one of the biggest challenges of soft robotics is that uh, just the generation of large internal forces. I think that, um, you know, uh, soft robots are typically slow and, and you know, these um, maybe pneumatically or hydraulically actuated uh, appendages um, are, are very slow, maybe not capable of producing um, huge forces. And, uh, and so we need to kind of work at the limits of, um, of, soft actuation and, and being able to um, provide more um, rapid, high force, responsive um, actuation methods uh, as well so that we can, you know, make more effective um, locomoting yeah. soft robots. Uh, I really agree with you. This is a limitation we're struggling with. Yeah, that's true. And your answer is very interesting about locomotion. And I'm curious to ask you, do you think when we work in research soft robotics, for example, it should be like project driven instead of technology driven because sometimes we develop soft robotics and the end of the day doesn't really meet our expectation in terms of the mechanical performance or response time. So uh, when you work in a locomotion, do you think this something give you insight is how to improve these parameters? And do you think we have to have a project uh, where it's project driven, not technology driven, that have a goal at the end of the day? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I do think so. I mean, I think that we are um, uh, project driven in my my lab. You know, um, I think we we typically are driven by um, a fundamental challenge in locomotion and how can we solve that with soft robotics or soft uh, uh, at least concepts from soft robotics. Um, you know, one example is this um, work that I've done with uh, Professor Mike Tolley at uh, yeah. UC San Diego on a soft burrowing robot. Um, and, you know, that, that work is all functionally driven. It's uh, or project driven, I would say, 
in the sense that we want to build a robot that can um, autonomously move from a like uh, swimming in the ocean to burrowing beneath a sandbed and to effectively moving um, an appreciable distance within a sandbed that's uh, submerged in the ocean. So um, I, I think that, you know, I think that fits your description of project driven as opposed to technology driven. Um, and so, you know, we are pretty open to what types of uh, like um, robot fabrication techniques we use, whether we integrate some standard servos into the robot. I mean, all those things are on the table because we want to solve this problem. Not that we want to, you know, just focus on it all has to be soft and it all has to, you know, be, I don't know, hydraulically, hydraulically actuated or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's also a differentiation between um, academic robotics research and industrial robotics research, where um, I think the, the sort of demands on um, having an application and, and having a specific, um, you know, thinking about the manufacturability and the limitations on, on the what you can put into your robot. Um, I think those are just totally different from an academic perspective and an yeah. industrial perspective. And what do you think would be the gap in that case, the discrepancy between academic and industrial bullet from the lab to real bullet? Um, I mean, I think that, uh, I think that, you know, some of the things that we build in my lab, most of the things probably um, uh, don't necessarily, I, I'm using a lot of qualifiers here, right? Um, mm. The things that we build in my lab, I think don't have a direct application and actually would perform quite poorly um, put up against a uh, robot that you could buy off the shelf right now. Um, I, I think the, however, um, the means in which we're building these robots, um, I think allow us to uh, explore these different regimes of, of robotics, right? So I'll highlight some work that we did recently um, that was published in Soft Robotics on 3D, using 3D printers that print rigid material, but printing that rigid material onto a soft film. So just a soft plastic film and what that gives you is the ability to print walking robots. Um, and, you know, the walking robots are, they perform no better than um, a toy walking robot that you could buy off the shelf right now that would be built out of just all, you know, all plastic components um, with joints and links. Mm -hmm. But what that work did was it highlighted this, I think, a, a different way to think about building soft robots, which is that typically 3D printed soft robots come from soft 3d printed material so you kind of have to like think about okay well it's um i'm using soft material to build the soft rope but in our work we're using rigid material to specify certain regions of the robot that it should be rigid but the robot started from a soft material it started from you know the the canvas of the robot that we kind of paint on is a soft flexible film so it means that anywhere that you don't put down rigid material you've got a soft continuum region of that robot. And so um, the, the walking robots that we built, that my student, Mingsong um, Zhang built, are, are no better than the kind of, you know, robots that you could buy right now. Um, but I think that my hope is that other researchers um, will see this technique and will think, oh, wow, you know, I think uh, I could use this to build a, I don't know, a, uh, exoskeleton, prost exoskeleton prosthetic for my hand or for um, some assistive device or for a swimming robot or something like that. And and that I think this, um, that just this sort of reimagining of how we build soft 
free printed software was you know, by using rigid material to specify rigid regions as opposed to using soft material to specify soft re uh, regions. I think that that is really a neat concept. And so I think the, the goal of an, you know, people building robots for consumer applications or for, um, for you know, direct use right now, they're very different. They're trying to build robots that are going to solve a, an immediate challenge that's, you know, or an immediate um, uh, consumer demand. Uh, um, yeah. And in research robotics or in academic research robotics, I think a lot of what we're doing is um, highlighting new concepts and new ways to think about building or controlling robots. Um, and so that, that's, I think, the main difference. And um, I'm happy, I, I totally admit that there is that distinction and that a lot of the kind of robots that we build are, you know, in the end, no better than, than what you would find out there if you were to try and just buy yeah. the same device, but they're kind of re-envisioning the way that we build things or the way that we control things. Yeah. So if I ask you to which level do you think uh, the current of robotics developed are intelligent? And if you can also highlight how you envision intelligence of robotics. Oh boy. I mean, that's a, that's a loaded question, right? Given, I think, lots of, uh, the, just the word intelligence, I think, is incredibly loaded. I mean, yeah. I think that, uh, um, so let's see, how do I answer this? I mean, I, I really come from the, the viewpoint that, um, that computation can be done by, um, inert passive objects, right? I, I think this is the, in my opinion, the kind of morphological complexity, uh, sort of morphological computation um, perspective. So I think that, uh, um, I think that intelligence um, can be embedded into uh, the robot body itself. Um, and, uh, and so I think that soft robots that, um, that have effective tuned interactions with the environment um, do kind of present some form of, um, of sort of intelligent behavior, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that, uh, you can think of examples of, of appendages that, uh, you know, will deform under internal oscillation of the body, but won't deform when a, a wave hits them or something like that. I'm kind of just making this up, but um, I think of that as a, you know, it's kind of this, um, this intelligence, right? There's this term that, um, that at least I've seen used in the legged literature called preflex, uh, which is, you know, not a reflex, which we think of as being a, you know, a, a fast internal, um, feedback regulated response. You know, you, you hit my knee in the right location and a nerve, mm -hmm. uh, uh, interacts with my brain or my spinal cord and sends a signal to, to jolt my leg. Um, I think that's how it works. Actually, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but, um, but a preflex is, is a response that happens before the nervous system can intervene, right? Something that would be so rapid that the signal from a uh, sensor to the spinal cord and back to a muscle is too slow um, for the response that we observe. And, and these come from, you know, the, I don't know, the classic examples I've seen are, um, you know, the, the, flicking of a, an insect's leg as it's walking and, and watching the leg not oscillate wildly, but basically mm -hmm. um, dance back to its, its prescribed location and do that much quicker than the nervous system can control. I, I think of that as intelligence, but it's not, it's, it's mechanical intelligence. It's yeah. not, uh, yeah. uh, you know, it's not um, neural intelligence. Yeah. That's also interesting. Um, we speak another episode about mechanical intelligence. <laughs> 
yeah, I, um, that's very interesting aspect. But I'm curious to ask you, how do you see the um, contribution of artificial intelligence and the current developed algorithms and in soft robotics? Is it in term design and control? How do you see a great contribution in uh, AI algorithm in soft robotics? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there's, there's no question that um, artificial intelligence has a lot to contribute to soft robotics. I think that the, um, the kind of control space of, uh, of a truly soft continuum robot is, I think it's immeasurable or at least, um, uh, I think challenges, like we said earlier, are traditional notions of like how we, how we do control. So I think, um, artificial intelligence and, and maybe just sort of, um, supervised learning methods or things like that to, to extract out, um, the, um, lower order descriptions of a soft robot. Um, I think those things can be extremely useful for, um, for building control systems for soft robots, right? Like, I think that when you have these like massively, um, input output type systems, I think that, uh, that learning methods and, and intelligence, artificial intelligence, um, mm -hmm. can be really, really useful. And that's, I mean, I think where artificial intelligence is just vastly, uh, where it's bread and butter is, I guess, in, in some senses, when you just have, uh, huge amounts of, of data and huge amounts of sort of descriptors of that, uh, uh, data, then you can do really, really great things. And I think the same can come from, you know, a soft manipulator. If you can, um, do lots of um, sort of prescribed uh, mm -hmm. input output, you know, movement and record or actuate and record um, uh, experiments on soft manipulators. I think you can probably build up extremely good um, uh, control models through AI techniques um, to, to control those soft robots. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm also interested about generative design for AI, and that's why I'm asking you in the design process for inspiration. Mm -hmm. um, uh, because uh, I, th I think it's when you look to the end, uh, I never work at that. And that's why I'm asking you, do you think you have to replicate every single piece of the real creature in the mechanical uh, perspective? Or how you get inspiration to mimic uh, the general behavior? Is it yeah, easy? No, no, no. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah. No, no, I, I think that um, that's a great point. I think that um, maybe this highlights a little bit of the difference between uh, bioinspired design and biomimicry, where I think that, um, you know, I think of biomimicry as being sort of uh, replication of, of uh, the form of the animal that you're inspired by at, at every level, um, you know, trying to do your best to um, capture every, every feature of that animal, whether it's functional or not. Um, I don't, I don't think that that's very useful. I think um, what is useful is understanding what are the essential elements of um, a biological system that we might be trying to uh, you know, build a bio-inspired robot from. So just what are the essential elements and how can I, um, how can I build those into my robot itself? Um, so I think in terms of, uh, so I think your question was how does artificial intelligence, how can that uh, factor into the design process? Is yeah. that right? Yeah. To get optimum design, uh, for example, or inspire the find that inspired the design. Right, it's um, a good question. I, I don't think I have a good answer for that. I mean, I certainly don't. We don't do any um, any you know any artificial intelligence or any sort of um, um, 
what I would call the sort of modern artificial intelligence techniques as applied towards design right now. Um, but I think, um, I mean, maybe if I was to extrapolate into things that I don't do, um, I think maybe um, the sort of uh, uh, designing of new materials for soft robotics, yeah. I can envision that being an area where um, uh, artificial intelligence methods um, uh, would be very useful. Um, I only just speaking of kind of my secondhand knowledge of these um, methods for, you know, using kind of uh, AI methods to um, discover and design new new materials. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, obviously, based on our earlier discussion, where I think materials are the future of soft robotics, or at least will be a huge part of the future of soft robotics, um, discovering the right, um, discovering materials with the right mechanical and thermal and electrical properties um mm -hmm. i think that, that there's a big effort to use artificial intelligence methods towards like new materials discovery and i think that that's certainly one area where um they can contribute to soft robot design yeah yeah and i'm curious to ask you about um, uh the communication between different disciplines since we in soft robotics we have to work with from control aspect or electric engineering, mechanical, material science. And to be honest, sometimes we've witnessed that there is a lack of communication or maybe understanding, and that's make the project at the end of the day not really making the end goal because of the, this miscommunication between different disciplines. Do you think, mm -hmm. is it challenging or not from your perspective to work in interdisciplinary uh, field for soft robotics? I mean, I think I think it's a problem that's bigger than soft robotics. Um, yeah. I think that, uh, just just cross communication between fields or even like sub disciplines within a field um, can be challenging. Um, and I think it's really about you know to get buy in from the people who are uh, working in those areas. Um, so I mean, I'm, uh, I can't. Let's see. I, I can't point to any specific examples um, within you know that are specific to soft robotics, um, but I know that they exist, right? I think just by the fact that they exist in every other experience that I've had uh, in, in science and engineering, I'm sure that they are um, mm -hmm. within soft robotics uh, too. Um, I think we do our best to to um, communicate the work that we're doing with uh, not just specialists within the field, but to be more broad and to try and go to, you know, I think my lab typically goes to um, IEEE conferences, um, American Physical Society conferences, and then actually a, a biology conference. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that um, uh, sort of uh, breadth of, of um, going to conferences and meeting people and talking with them helps us at least, uh, I think, um, broaden our um, ability to communicate with other disciplines. Um, so I'm not saying that we're necessarily the best at this either. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's just, I think that that's one of the things that I think is really important is to kind of not get uh, siloed within just, um, uh, you know, the, the one conference or the one um, journal or, or whatever, you know, I think it's important to, um, to be exploring um, broader outside of your sort of comfort zone and learning about how other people are um, thinking about these kinds of, systems yeah so if i ask you how we ensure that uh, develops of robotics is beneficial uh, to humanity as a whole uh, as we develop the project at uh, day one and we have like four year five year projects how we can ensure that's going to be beneficial 
is this something we can control? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a good question. It's not really something that I'm concerned with because I think that um, soft robotics have so many um, just natural applications, um, you know, in, uh, I think first and foremost, and probably the, the one that is going to be the most um, impactful is, is just, you know, human machine interaction kinds of problems, right? Whether it's like me working in a, a space next to a robot that I don't want to, to accidentally kill me. So soft robots have a huge application in those kinds of yeah. cases. Or whether it's like um, a robot that I'm going to be wearing on my body and then has to interact with my, you know, soft tissue that, that you know, is sort of surrounding me. Um, I think that those um, applications for soft robotics mean that uh, those those are incredibly um, important applications that I think we're going to are going to continue to drive the um, the like advancement of soft robotics. Um, I think to to get to the point where you know it's unquestionable that we need soft robots to get to that point. I think we need to to continue the development of um, uh, of actuation and control. Um, I think that that's that's mm -hmm. really um, I think going to be the thing that drives forward. Um, you know the, the sort of more um, adoption of soft robots and and the industrialization of you know soft robot components. You know like actually being being used in large capacity uh, uh, out in the world. I mean, I think, I don't know. I mean, what's, I think my, the example that I can kind of point to is, um, is, is maybe just like looking at the world of um, uh, robotics in general. Like, I think that it's un unquestionable today that, that uh, robots and, and more so like um, in industry produced robots um, are everywhere, right? Certainly not talking about manufacturing robots so much as I'm thinking of like, um, you know, Spot and, um, you know, the Boston Dynamics suite of legged robots, the Ghost Robotics legged robots, the Cassie, the Unitrees robot, like legged robots now are, I, I think you can find, um, I don't know, I mean, 50 manufacturers uh, of them in some capacity. And I think, in my opinion, what's, what's driven a lot of that is, um, control and actuation. I mean, we've got now really, really, really high power density uh, motors that can produce large torques. They won't burn out. Um, and uh, I think that that's something that uh, that just wasn't necessarily available to uh, legged robotics researchers uh, in the 80s, let alone the 60s. And, and you can look back at these you know, amazing robots that we built, legged robots that we built in the 60s. Um, and you can ask why didn't it really catch on then? And um, I, I think it's it's driven by just advancements in in um, both control and actuation, and kind of all the amazing things that were done in in the eighties with Mark Rabert, and um, you know in the kind of late nineties, two thousands with uh, uh, Stanford Group. And um, I, I think uh, the same is is true for soft robotics. That I think that. Uh, sort of miniaturization of power sources and mm -hmm. specifically soft robotics um, actuation sources uh, and uh, improvements in control methods for these these you know continuum hard to control robots um, I think those things are really gonna um, cement soft robotics in, uh, in yeah. society yeah so if I ask you do you think ego is important for the researcher hmm, interesting uh, I don't know. Um, 
You mean in the sense of like, uh, should a um, head of a software robotics lab have an ego? Is that is that kind of the way that you mean? Yeah, and if, whatever it means to you, whether you develop ideas or argument or or having yeah, an idea. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, you can look at it, it's. Or you have to convince someone about your ideas, and uh, yeah, right, it's totally. Yeah. No, no. I, I mean, that's a great question. It's one that you know. Uh, I think it's a really good question. I. I I think yes. Um, I think that uh, it's in the end, like if you look back on history, there's always sort of one prevailing um, uh, a story that that people typically point to. I don't know. I can't give an example, but you know, sort of what what typically comes out uh, in the end is is uh, somebody's opinion or somebody's. Um, branding ended up being on top but at the time there were probably many people who had conflicting opinions right and i think that that's mm -hmm. that's uh, i think a little bit of what you're getting at in terms of um just soft robotics research maybe mm -hmm. many different perspectives are out there right now and um i i do think it's probably important it, i think i'm a little hung up on the ego i guess but let me just say this i do think it's important for um for researchers to to be passionate about what they're doing and to be able to convey that passion to other people yes. both, um, within the society, within, within the software products community, but also um, outside of it to just the general public. Why tell the general public why what you're doing is, is really, really useful and how mm -hmm. it can be used now and in the future. I think that's extremely important just for any researcher. And, and I think that people should hear the passion in your voice when you're talking about your work and your excitement and things like that. Yeah. Um, and I think that probably, I guess, I guess that technically is, is ego or comes down to some sense of, uh, of that word. I just, I guess I don't like that word just cause it, I think it has such negative connotations, right? That, uh, I don't know, somebody who has a big ego is typically looked at as, as that's a negative trait, mm -hmm. right? Whereas I get what you're saying that having a big ego can mean that you're, um, uh, just really good at, at promoting your opinion and your passions and your ideas. Um, so I definitely think it's it's incredibly important for yeah. us to be passionate about what we do and to be able to tell people why what we do is important, Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So from your experience, what is the most important qualities for the researcher? If you um, can see three qualities for the researcher. Well, I think, I mean, I think first and foremost, you have to love what you, what you do. I think that, you know, mm. there has to be just this, um, insatiable drive to, to, to solve a problem, right? I think the problem solving is what we do all the time, um, at, at multiple different levels. Um, and, uh, um, I think it's really important to be able to focus on a single problem and, and dive as deeply as you possibly can into it. So I think that's one, um, you know, I, th I think prompted by your last question, I think that the ability to, um, to then communicate your ideas, um, to, people is incredibly important as well. I mean, I think you're just, you're not gonna be able to get funding if you can't tell people why uh, mm. what you're doing is important. And and so that's really, really essential is um, to not only be able to be really good technically and to solve a problem, but also to be able to tell people why that's a um, useful problem to solve, how you did it, how other people can do it. Um, I don't know, the third thing, I do think that, that um, it is, it's essential to be able to, to dive into the, the technical aspects of the problem. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that, um, uh, I, I'm still really happy that I still have 
I get to contribute to the projects that my students work on in meaningful technical ways. Um, I think that uh, if I ever lose that, I'm going to be really sad. And what that means to me is like, I don't know, I mean, writing some C++ code or like pulling up MATLAB and, mm -hmm. and doing an analysis. Like, I, I think that if I get to a point where I haven't done some kind of um, technical analysis of an experiment or of a simulation or something, um, I'm going to be really sad. And I, I think it's important to um, have uh, technical skills, specifically speaking, like technical software skills, data analysis or programming or things like that, um, to, to be able to be successful um, these days. So much of our work is is either simulation or you know large scale analysis of mm. huge video sets, video data sets or things like that. Yeah. I can't agree more with that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So finally, what were the best advice was given to you as a personally, professionally, you would like to share with us? And was life changing for you? Hmm. I don't know. I can't think of any one piece of advice. Um, you know, I think I'm just going to say, I, I think that I don't know if anybody specifically gave this to me or if it just, uh, I learned it through experience, but I think it's important to be able to balance life and, and, um, science life and your professional work. I think that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like I said, in the past answer, um, being passionate about a project and being able to dive deeply into that project is really, really important. I think also being able to completely step away from a project or even step away from uh, uh, work is, is really, really important too. You got to be able to turn it off on a weekend sometimes. That's not to say I don't work on weekends sometimes, but but there are many weekends that I don't work. There are some weekdays uh, where I might not work in an afternoon or something like that. I think that um, I, I find stepping away from um, stepping away from uh, uh, work and, and from a problem helps you reflect on that. You know, like, mm. I really like jogging and I go for long jogs and I, I find my mind just wandering and all of a sudden um, an idea will come to me or a solution or something like that. And it, it always comes when I'm not actively thinking about the problem. And so I think that's really important. It's just the ability to kind of like balance um, uh, just work and not work activities, you know, family, travel, leisure, whatever. Um, and I think that people can be incredibly successful um, while still balancing those things. So yeah, I that's valuable advice. I, uh, so we come to the end. If you have any final words you'd like to share for Soft Robotics community? Um, no, I mean, I think it's a fantastic community. I, I, I am really excited to be um, a part of it. And I think I've only been a part of it for a short amount of time, certainly not through the whole history of Soft Robotics. But I think you can look to Soft Robotics as just this, this incredibly... Um, uh, I don't know, fantastically quick rise um, in terms of status within the community. I mean, I think we have uh, fantastic journals, fantastic um, uh, support within IEEE, and it's just a really exciting uh, um, community to be, to be a part of. And I think that it's, it's just going to get better. So I don't know. I'm excited to be a part of it. So thanks so much for this interesting discussion and above IEEE Soft Robotics TC. I'd like to have your time. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much, Tara. Thank you.